This is a When Walls Can Talk network podcast. If you're like me and have had an interest in creating your own podcast, but don't really know where to get started, let me tell you about Anchor. Anchor is the completely free creation tool that allows you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Once you've finished recording, Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard across all podcast streaming platforms. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership right from your very first episode. It's everything that you need to make and distribute a podcast all in one place. To get started, download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Hi, my name is Jeremy Haig, psychic medium, tarot reader, and proud nerd of the occult and the spiritual. I've been talking to the dead since before I can remember. Hearing their stories and listening to their lessons radically changed my life and taught me to become more curious and peel back the layers of the world around me. On this podcast, I invite you on a journey as we discuss spirituality hot topics with specialists and practitioners from across the witchcraft community, pull and explore monthly collective tarot readings, and recount lost or forgotten paranormal stories from around the world. This is When Walls Can Talk, the podcast. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. Barbara and I, we haven't, I don't know if you see a ghost, but we felt you did? something. Where? We were at the White House. Let me just go ahead and rewind that for you real quick. We were at the White House. Yes, you heard that correctly. The White House. And I know the White House has to be haunted, right? I mean, and maybe again, that's us <laughs> thinking it has to be haunted. But so many, yes. But we, my phone rang. It woke us up in the middle of the night. We had a fireplace in our, in our room. And all of a sudden, we started hearing like 1920s piano music as clear as day, coming, coming through out the fireplace. Of the fireplace. I was so, I like jumped in Barbara's bed. We were both awake. The next week, we heard the same thing, but opera. And we talked ourselves out of it, but then I said to a guy, Buddy, one of my favorite men in the world who still works at the White House, I said, Buddy, yeah, what? you wouldn't believe what we heard last night. And he goes, oh, Jenna, you wouldn't believe what I've heard. Remember this voice and this interview. I'm going to leave it here for now, but we'll come back to it soon. What if I told you that ghost and occult practices have been reported and documented at the White House for hundreds of years? Would you be surprised? Now what if I told you that the main characters in these stories were none other than our very own First Ladies, and even Presidents of the United States? And yes, that would be plural. But I suppose it all would make sense, wouldn't it? 
The property itself, in constant chaos, is the perfect breeding ground for negative energy to fester and manifest itself in countless different ways. A property filled with secrets and cover-ups, and the focal point of constant public scrutiny and sometimes hatred. What if I told you that stories suggest the possibility of a demonic force haunting the legendary halls of the White House? What could that suggest about the future of this country, or even more concerning, what could it explain about our past? After all, if you were a demonic force hellbent on causing destruction on the highest volume imaginable, what better place to draw your battle lines than at the epicenter of American political power? With the focus of the world turned upon it every day, why couldn't that cumulative energy function like a battery, fueling the collective energies directing towards it to fervor and chaos? After all, it's a building like any other, isn't it? Why couldn't it be vulnerable to paranormal activity just like any other? By extension, the president himself. How does this energy, these spirits of the past, affect the people that run this home? Okay, and before I lose too many people here, no, this episode is not about to get all political and conspiracy theory-y about the United States and its politics. Hey guys, it's Jeremy Haig, your host from When Walls Can Talk, the podcast. And on today's episode, we crack the lid open on spiritualism in America and the secret seance in the White House. No, I'm not here to get political. I really am just here to talk about ghosts. But, you know, while we're here, we might as well enjoy the drama. Oh, and did I mention that these questions I posed at the beginning of the episode aren't really theoreticals at all? The White House is haunted fabulously so even ghost stories have been commonplace there for over 150 years it has had enough documented sightings by presidents of the united states to earn it an acclaimed place amongst the Velisca axe murder house and the lizzie borden houses of the world but that story has and always will be kept from the general public but not today let me tell you the story or rather the stories The White House hauntings really start in 1853, during Franklin Pierce's presidency from 1853 to 1857. Tragedy followed his life wherever he went. Born in New Hampshire, Franklin Pierce was a pretty quick rising star in the political scene, serving the State House of Representatives for three terms, as well as general in the Mexican-American War. Franklin Pierce goes on to meet Jane Pierce, and more or less, everyone that had anything to say to describe their relationship used the phrase, opposites attract, and boy were they the textbook example. Jane Pierce hated politics with a passion, and hated drinking, of which her husband was a regular partaker. Jane was born to Reverend Dr. Jesse Appleton, who was a strict Calvinist minister. A simple Google search yielded the following buzz phrase to describe Calvinism. Marked by strong emphasis on the sovereignty of God, the depravity of humankind, and the doctrine of predestination. And to be honest, I think that speaks for itself. She was always somewhat sick and frail, and tragedy seemed to follow her as well. 
Their firstborn child passes away after just a few days. Jane Pierce was hurtled into a massive war with depression and soon after described being afflicted with guilt. Shortly afterwards, their second child passes away at the age of four, leaving the Pierce family with their youngest, a boy named Benny. Jane Pierce pours all of her love and devotion into Benny, almost to the point of obsession. Jane begged her husband to leave his current position in politics where he was serving in Congress and to stop drinking, but the call of politics was too strong. In 1852, at the Democratic National Convention, Pierce allowed his name to be quietly circulated to the point where his wife was unaware he had been selected as the nominee for president. History suggests that the moment Jane found out, she fainted on the spot. Benny wrote his mother a letter shortly after, praying that his father would not be elected because he knew how unhappy it would make the pair of them. Despite his family's pleas, Pierce is elected the 14th president of the United States, due to be sworn in on March 4, 1853. When Pierce arrives to the White House, the elephant in the room is slavery, the biggest topic on everyone's mind. Pierce was considered to be a doughface, or a northerner with southern tendencies. His goal coming into the Oval Office was to keep slavery contained in the South and keep the northerners content. He hoped this would more or less keep everyone happy. On January 6th, only days before Pierce's inauguration, the family takes a train ride up to Massachusetts. On the way, their passenger car becomes unhooked and rolls down the hill and into an embankment. Franklin manages to grab Jane, but Benny is thrown from the rolling car to his death. As he lay there on the ground, looking so still and unconscious, his cap covering his face, his parents rushed and attempted to shake him awake. As the cap fell, they discovered the entirety of his little face had been crushed in, their last and only remaining child. Jane felt the entirety of the blame for this disastrous tragedy fell at Franklin's feet. It was a sign from God that he was not to assume the presidency. She felt betrayed like Franklin had went back on some form of promise to her. Their inauguration was one of the most somber in U.S. history, all the world knowing the tragedy that had just befallen their family. To quote his inaugurational address, It is a relief to feel that no heart but my own can know the personal regret and bitter sorrow over which I have been born to this position. You have summoned me in my weakness. You must sustain me by your strength. Franklin Pierce should have been celebrating this rise to the highest seat of political power in our country, but instead Pierce's family was torn to pieces, his wife shattered like billions of shards of glass. She locked herself away in her room for weeks at a time, earning the unfortunate nickname among the press as the Phantom of the White House. She wouldn't come out for days, a ghost in her own home, gliding about dressed in black. My precious child, I must write to you, although you are never to see it or know it. I must say something to you, as if you were near me. Oh, if only you had but been in reach of your dear father, a moment to change my dear boy's bright form into a lifeless one, insensible to your parents' agony. 
Jane poured herself into countless, long, sad letters to Benny, a grief-stricken mother's only way to process and channel her pain. But Jane wanted that one more chance to speak to her child, and I don't know that I blame her. She came to believe that on the one hand, God may have come and taken Benny to send a message to Franklin about his presidency. But on the other hand, she also simultaneously began to set aside her own beliefs to seek out other possible means of contacting him. This is where we need to step back and examine the spiritual climate of America in 1853, a country gripped in fascination with the world of spiritualism. Now, in order to truly understand the context of this story, I need to take you on a massive detour to explain a brief history of spiritualism in America. And by brief, I mean probably a good portion of the runtime of this episode. <laughs> but bear with me, and we will pick right back up here with Jane Pierce on the other side. Spiritualism in America couldn't be found in churches or be heard from preachers. Spiritualists believed, to put it simply, that we can communicate with those who have died. Spiritualists would hold meetings in homes or community buildings where lectures would be given, or seances would be conducted so people could speak to their dead loved ones. There were demonstrations by mediums and other sensitive individuals who would bring forth the dead and communicate primarily via knocks on the walls or floors. Spiritualism may conjure up many skeptical thoughts for us today, but this was a real movement that millions of people wholeheartedly believed and participated in. Spiritualism has been considered a religion, a fad, a hoax, but whatever our thoughts are, it was a national phenomenon during the mid-1800s. Why did spiritualism become such a phenomenon during the mid-1800s? First, we need to look at the two previous centuries. The 16th and 17th centuries in America were dominated by a very puritanical form of Christianity. Anyone who practiced anything like spiritualism during that time would have been risking their life. It is estimated that thousands of people were executed for witchcraft in Europe and America during those centuries. Life was very rural, harsh, and rigid, and people were held to very strict morals. It was a matter of life or death. America was drastically changing in the mid-1800s. There was more industrialization and urbanization, which meant cities were growing and work was evolving. Inventions and science were transforming how people looked at the world around them. Immigrants were bringing in new religious practices and beliefs into American towns. There was literature and scientific discoveries that challenged religious beliefs and the Bible. America was on the verge of a civil war and tensions were high. People were looking for assurance because life seemed uncertain. Another big factor for the rise of spiritualism was that people were not as comforted by traditional Christian beliefs when loved ones died. The death of children especially led parents to seek comfort in other places besides their community church. Spiritualism offered grieving people solace while coping with their loss. All of these factors helped create an opening for spiritualism to rise. Invention and science were factors in the popularity of spiritualism in the mid-1800s. Some even saw spiritualism as a scientific religion. The invention of photography played into spiritualism beautifully. This brand new technology fascinated and terrified at the same time. Photography allowed us to see the unseen, or what we were unable to see from our own perspectives. Photographs taken from hot air balloons gave people their first aerial images of towns and cities. Civil War photographs showed death and destruction on a scale that few had ever seen before. 
There were plenty of photographs that were produced during this time that made it look like spirits were revealed through this scientific process of capturing images on paper. Whether these were a scam or not, it gave many comfort to think their dead loved ones were near, even if they couldn't see them. These pictures were published in newspapers and spiritualism benefited despite critics and proof that some of these pictures were manipulated. Prior to the Civil War, when a loved one died, the family handled the process at home. The dying would be surrounded by family and friends. Wakes and funerals were held in homes, allowing people the chance to grieve together. The Civil War changed that for thousands of families. It is estimated that 750,000 men died in the Civil War, hundreds of thousands of families who were unable to be with their loved ones when they passed. They may have never even seen the body. They had no closure. Death on this scale hadn't happened in the U.S. before. This great loss and immense sorrow of so many families contributed to the rise in appeal and even necessity of spiritualism. Spiritualism gave someone a chance to speak to their loved one or hear from a medium that their loved one was at peace, which was a great comfort to grieving people. Seances were a big part of spiritualism. Television and the big screen have given many images of seances today, People sitting around a table in a darkened room, maybe holding hands while spooky noises fill the air and potentially tables levitate. This is much like what actually happened during a seance in Victorian America, and where most of these images originate from. The many factors that led to the rise of spiritualism in America made the public believe in the abilities of mediums and the legitimacy of seances. People truly wanted to believe that we could connect with the spirit world, Unfortunately, many unscrupulous people used seances to con people out of money during the mid and late 1800s. Many mediums were exposed for their fraud, but it didn't stop the popularity of seances. The reason that so many mediums could conduct fraudulent seances was because there were no electric lights at the time. Rooms would be lit by oil lamps or candles, so the seance is perfectly set for trickery in rooms with low light or even darkness. Participants might even be encouraged to keep their eyes closed. Many mediums had accomplices to help them create ghostly noises and manifestations. Some mediums used specially constructed cabinets that could produce music or allow their accomplices to come and go during the seance unseen. Oil of phosphorus would be used to make things glow in the dark. Victorian seances were a source of entertainment for some, hope or proof of scientific advancement for others. Once electric lights or handheld lights were available, those who conducted fraudulent seances needed to look for other ways to entertain their attendees. Spiritualism became less popular in the 20th century, and there are many skeptics and con artists surrounding this movement and religion. But there is no denying its lasting impact. Everything from haunted houses to Ouija boards to the psychic hotline can be attributed to the rise of spiritualism in the 19th century. But where did spiritualism begin? It began in one of the most humble places imaginable, in the bedroom of two young girls living in a farmhouse in Hydesville, New York. Not the answer you were expecting, I'm sure. On a late March day in 1848, Margareta, known as Maggie Fox, 14, and Kate, her 11-year-old sister, waylaid a neighbor eager to share an odd and frightening phenomenon. Every night around bedtime, they said, they heard a series of raps on the walls and furniture. Raps that seemed to manifest with a peculiar otherworldly intelligence. 
The neighbor, skeptical, came to see for herself, joining the girls in the small chamber they shared with their parents. While Maggie and Kate huddled together on their bed, their mother, Margaret, began the demonstration. Now count to five, she ordered, and the room shook with the sound of five heavy thuds. Count fifteen, she commanded, and the mysterious presence obeyed. Next, she asked it to tell the neighbor's age. Thirty-three distinct raps followed. If you are an injured spirit, she continued, manifest it by three raps. And it did. Margaret Fox did not seem to consider the date, March 31st, April Fool's Eve, and the possibility that her daughters were frightened not by an unseen presence, but by the expected success of their prank. In 1888, Margareta told the story of the origins of the mysterious wrappings. When we went to bed at night, we used to tie an apple to a string and move the string up and down, making a strange noise every time it would rebound. Mother listened to this for a time. She would not understand it and did not suspect us as being capable of a trick because we were so young. Over the course of the next few days, a code was developed where raps could signify yes or no in response to a question or be used to indicate a letter of the alphabet. The girls addressed the spirit as Mr. Splitfoot, which is a nickname for the devil. Later, the alleged entity creating the sounds claimed to be the spirit of a peddler named James B. Rosna, who had been murdered five years earlier and claimed to be buried in the cellar. Margareta Fox, again in her later years, noted, The neighbors were convinced that someone had been murdered in the house. They asked the spirits through us about it, and we would wrap one for the spirit answer yes, not three as we did afterward. They went over the whole surrounding country trying to get the names of people who had formerly lived in the house. Finally, they found a man by the name of Bell, and they said that this poor innocent man had committed a murder and that the noise it had come from the spirit of the murdered person. Poor Bell was shunned and looked upon by the whole community as a murderer. The Fox family deserted the house in the wake of the excitement and set Maggie and Kate to live with their older sister, Leah Fox Fish, in Rochester. The story might have died there were it not for the fact that Rochester was a hotbed for reform and religious activity. The same vicinity, the Finger Lakes region of New York State, gave birth to both Mormonism and Millerism, the precursor to Seventh-day Adventism. Community leaders Isaac and Amy Post were intrigued by the Fox sisters' story and the subsequent rumor that the spirit likely belonged to a peddler who had been murdered in the farmhouse five years beforehand. The posts then invited the girls to a gathering at their home, anxious to see if they could communicate with the spirits in another locale. Quote, I suppose I went with as much unbelief as Thomas felt when he was introduced to Jesus after he had ascended, Isaac Post wrote, but he was swayed by, quote, very distinct thumps under the floor and several apparent answers. He was further convinced when Leah Fox also proved to be a medium herself, communicating with the Post's recently deceased daughter. The Posts rented the largest hall in Rochester, and 400 people came to see the mysterious noises. Afterwards, Amy Post accompanied the sisters to a private chamber where they were disrobed and examined by a committee of skeptics who found no evidence of a hoax. This was the first demonstration of spiritualism held before a paying public and inaugurated a long history of public events, a tradition that has extended to this day. The sisters graduated from apple dropping to manipulating their knuckles, joints, and toes to make rapping sounds. A great many people, when they hear the rapping, imagine at once that the spirits are touching them, Margareta explained. 
It is a very common delusion. Some very wealthy people came to see me some years ago, when I lived in 42nd Street, and did some wrappings for them. I made the spirit rap on the chair, and one of the ladies cried out, I feel the spirit tapping me on the shoulder. Of course, that was pure imagination. The idea that one could communicate with spirits was hardly new. The Bible contains hundreds of references to angels and ministering to man, but the movement known as modern spiritualism sprang from several distinct revolutionary philosophies and characters. The ideas and practices of Franz Anton Mesmer, an 18th century Australian healer, had spread to the United States and by the 1840s held the country in thrall. Mesmer proposed that everything in the universe, including the human body, was governed by a magnetic fluid that could become imbalanced, causing illness. By waving his hands over a patient's body, he induced a mesmerized hypnotic state that allowed him to manipulate the magnetic force and restore health. Amateur mesmerists became a popular attraction at parties and in parlors, a few proving skillful enough to attract paying customers. Some who awakened from a mesmeric trance claimed to have experienced visions of spirits from another dimension. At the same time, the ideas of Immanuel Swedenborg, an 18th century Swedish philosopher and mystic, also surged in popularity. Swedenborg described an afterlife consisting of three heavens, three hells, and an interim destination, the world of the spirits, where everyone went immediately upon dying, and which was more or less similar to what we are now accustomed to on earth. Self-love drove one toward the varying degrees of hell. Love for others elevated one to the heavens. Quote, the Lord casts no one into hell, he wrote, but those who are there have deliberately cast themselves into it and keep themselves there. Seventy-five years later, the 19th century American seer Andrew Jackson Davis, who would become known as the John the Baptist of modern spiritualism, combined these two ideologies, claiming that Swedenborg's spirit spoke to him during a series of mesmeric trances. Davis recorded the content of these messages and in 1847 published them in a voluminous tome named The Principles of Nature, Her Divine Revelations, and A Voice to Mankind. Quote, it is a truth, he asserted, predicting the rise of spiritualism, that spirits commune with one another while one is in the body and the other in the higher spheres. All the world will hail with delight the ushering in of that era when the interiors of men will be opened and the spiritual communication will be established. Davis believed his prediction materialized a year later on the very day the Fox sisters first channeled spirits in their bedroom. Quote, about daylight this morning, he confided to his diary, a warm breathing passed over my face, and I heard a voice, tender and strong, saying, Brother, the good work has begun. Behold, a living demonstration is born. Upon hearing of the Rochester incident, Davis invited the Fox sisters to his home in New York City to witness their medium capabilities for himself. Joining his cause with the sisters' ghostly manifestations elevated his stature from obscure prophet to recognized leader of a mass movement, one that appealed to increasing numbers of Americans inclined to reject the gloomy Calvinistic doctrine of predestination and embrace the reform-minded optimism of the mid-19th century. Unlike their Christian contemporaries, Americans who adopted spiritualism believed they had a hand in their own salvation, and direct communication with those who had passed offered insight into the ultimate fate of their own souls. Maggie, 
Kate and Leah Fox embarked on a professional tour to spread word of the spirits, booking a suite fittingly in Barnum's Hall on the corner of Broadway and Maiden Lane, an establishment owned by a cousin of the famed showman. An editorial in the Scientific American scoffed at their arrival, calling the girls the spiritual knockers from Rochester. They conducted their sessions in the hotel's parlor, inviting as many as 30 attendees to gather round a large table at the hours of 10 a.m., 5 p.m., and 8 p.m., taking an occasional private meeting in between. Admission was $1, and visitors included prominent members of the New York Society, Horace Greeley, the iconoclastic and influential editor of the New York Tribune, James Fenimore Cooper, editor and poet William Cullen Bryant, an abolitionist, William Lloyd Garrison, who witnessed a session in which the spirits wrapped in time to a popular song and spelled out a message, spiritualism will work miracles in the cause of reform. Leia stayed on in New York, entertaining callers in a seance room, while Kate and Maggie took the show to other cities, among them Cleveland, Cincinnati, Columbus, St. Louis, Washington, D.C., and Philadelphia, where one visitor, explorer Elisha Kent Kane, succumbed to Maggie's charms even as he deemed her a fraud, although he couldn't prove how the sounds were made. Quote, After a whole month's trial, I could make nothing of them, he confessed. Therefore, they are a great mystery. He courted Maggie, 13 years his junior, and encouraged her to give up her, quote, life of dreary sameness and suspected deceit. She acquiesced, retiring to attend school at Kane's behest and expense, and married him shortly before his untimely death in 1857. To honor his memory, she converted to Catholicism, as Kane, a Presbyterian, had always encouraged. He seemed to think the faith's ornate iconography and sense of mystery would appeal to her. In mourning, she began drinking heavily and vowed to keep her promise to Cain to, quote, wholly and forever abandon spiritualism. Kate, meanwhile, married a devout spiritualist and continued to develop her medium powers, translating spirit messages in astonishing and unprecedented ways, communicating two messages simultaneously, writing one while speaking the other, transcribing messages in reverse script, utilizing blank cards upon which words seem to spontaneously appear. During sessions with the wealthy banker Charles Livermore, she summoned both the deceased man's wife and the ghost of Benjamin Franklin, who announced his identity by writing his name on a card. Her business boomed during and after the Civil War, as increasing numbers of the bereaved found solace in spiritualism. Prominent spiritualist Emma Harding, we'll come back to her in just a moment, wrote that the war added two million new believers to the movement, and by the 1880s, there were an estimated eight million spiritualists in the United States and Europe. These new practitioners, seduced by the flamboyance of the Gilded Age, expected miracles, like Kate's summoning of full-fledged apparitions at every seance. It was wearying, both to the movement and to Kate herself, and she too began to drink. On October 21st, 1888, the New York World published an interview with Maggie Fox in anticipation of her appearance that evening at the New York Academy of Music, where she would publicly denounce spiritualism. She was paid $1,500 for the exclusive. Her main motivation, however, was rage at her sister Leah and other leading spiritualists who had publicly chastised Kate for her drinking and accused her of being unable to care for her two young children. 
Kate planned to be in the audience when Maggie gave the speech, lending her tacit support. Maggie offered a demonstration, removing her shoe and placing her right foot upon a wooden stool. The room fell silent and still, and was rewarded with a number of short little raps. Quote, There stood a black-robed, sharp-faced widow, the New York Herald reported, working her big toe and solemnly declaring that this was the way she created the excitement that has driven so many persons to suicide or insanity. One moment it was ludicrous, the next it was weird. Maggie insisted that her sister Leah knew that the wrappings were fake all along and greedily exploited her younger sisters. Before exiting the stage, she thanked God that she was able to expose spiritualism. Hey, Paranormal Weirdos. I truly hope you're enjoying this week's episode so far. If you're enjoying When Walls Can Talk, the podcast, I humbly welcome you to consider making a financial contribution to the When Walls Can Talk tip jar to ensure I can continue to create episodes like this one for seasons to come. Your financial support helps to cover operating costs like recording equipment, editing software, marketing materials, music rights, and helps with the purchase of books, historical publications, and research materials to ensure that every episode is as professional and as well-constructed as we possibly can. If you're interested in making a small contribution, and let me tell you that no amount is too little, please feel free to hop on over to PayPal where you can tip us through my email, Jeremy at whenwallscantalktarot.com or on Cash App through Money Sign Jeremy Hag. That's Money Sign J E R E M Y H A I G. There's also a support link in the show notes for this and every episode where you can support us directly as well. Thank you so much for listening to my little sales pitch and for sticking with me through this episode so far. And now, let's get back to the show. Whatever her motive, Maggie recanted her confession one year later, insisting that her spirit guides had beseeched her to do so. Her reversal prompted more disgust from devoted spiritualists, many of whom failed to recognize her at a subsequent debate at the Manhattan Liberal Club. There, under the pseudonym Mrs. Spencer, Maggie revealed several tricks of the profession, including the way mediums wrote messages on blank slates by using their teeth or feet. She never reconciled with her sister Leah, who died in 1890. Kate died two years later while on a drinking spree. Maggie passed away another eight months later in March 1893. That year, spiritualists formed the National Spiritualist Association, which today is known as the National Spiritualist Association of Churches. In 1904, school children playing in the sisters' childhood home in Hydesville, known locally as the Spook House, discovered the majority of a skeleton between the earth and crumbling cedar walls. A doctor was consulted who estimated that the bones were about 50 years old, giving credence to the sister's tale of spiritual messages from the murdered peddler. But not everyone was convinced. The New York Times reported that the bones had created, quote, a stir amusingly disproportioned to any necessary significance of the discovery, and suggested that the sisters had merely been clever enough to exploit a local mystery. 
Even if the bones were that of a murdered peddler, the Times concluded, there will still remain that dreadful confession about the clicking joints, which reduces the whole case to a farce. Five years later, another doctor examined the skeleton and determined that it was made up of, quote, only a few ribs with odds and ends of bones, and among them a superabundance of some, and a deficiency of others. Among them also were some chicken bones. He also reported a rumor that a man living near the spook house had planted the bones as a practical joke, but was much too ashamed to come clean. The Fox sisters may have been the beginning of spiritualism in America, but Emma Harding Britton was the religion's biggest advocate. Emma Harding Britton was an English advocate for the early modern spiritualist movement and is remembered as a writer, orator, and practitioner of the movement. She was born in London, England in 1823. Her father, Ebenezer, was a schoolteacher who died in 1834 when Britton was 11 years old. Long before Britton even thought of spiritualism, she earned money playing the piano in Pierre Erard's showroom for customers shopping for musical instruments. Erard had inherited his piano and pianoforte business and had manufacturing operations and shops in both London and Paris. She likely began working in his London shop and then was sent to Paris because of her musical skills. By the age of 19, her musical skills evolved into a stage career, and according to a 2015 dissertation written by Lisa A. Howe, quote, Britain's first acting jobs were with the Theatre Royale Covent Garden and the Princess's Theatre in Oxford Street in 1842 and 1843 as Miss Floyd. In 1844, she began working under the name Miss Emma Harding at Sandler Wells Theatre and Adelphi Theatre. Despite Britain's musical and acting abilities, from early childhood she developed a reputation as a spiritual medium. This was because she had a habit of predicting people's futures relating to what she'd seen in visions, and providing details about deceased relatives with whom she had no prior relationship. Of these times, Britain wrote in her biography, Looking back upon my own earliest recollections, I fancy that I was never young, joyous, or happy like other children. My delight was to steal away alone and seek the solitude of woods and fields, but above all to wander in churchyards, cathedral cloisters, and old monastic ruins. Here, strange sounds would ring in my ears, sometimes in the forms of exquisite music, suggesting new compositions and songs, sometimes in voices uttering dim prophecies of future events, especially in coming misfortunes. At times, forms of rare beauty of appalling ugliness flitted across my path, wearing the human form and conveying impressions of identity with those who had once lived on Earth. At the time of these unchildlike experiences, no one around understood me, though the servants of family would often say in low tones amongst themselves that the child had described some of their dead relatives, and also that whatever I prophesied was sure to come to pass. During her stage career, she signed an agreement to appear at the Imperial Theatre in Paris with the J.W. Wallach Company. The trip proved to be a total financial failure and no one from the troupe was paid. After Emma Harding Britton found Paris a theatrical failure, she received an invite in 1855 to go to New York to appear on stage. The offer included paid passage for her and her mother and a nine-month engagement contract at what Britton considered to be an excellent salary. Part of the reason for her stage success in America may have had something to do with her looks, because around 1860 she was described in the following fashion. Blonde, with deep blue handsome eyes and light brown hair falling about her neck in small ringlets, much in Lola Montez's style. 
Her face is decidedly English, barring its vivacity and mobility with an unusual degree of color, manifesting an excess of physical health. Despite being on stage, Britton continued to think about spiritualism. However, she was pious and not necessarily convinced spirit returns were anything more than a farce predicted by, quote, infidels. Therefore, while in New York, she decided to attend various spiritualist seances so she could write about the gullibility of Americans. Things did not go as planned. During these seances, Britton began to experience events from her own childhood. She then became convinced of spiritualism and converted to it fully, and under the guidance of a medium named Ada Hoyt, her mystical experiences resulted in her delving further into spiritualism. Britain soon developed a stellar reputation among spiritualists and became known among them as the silver-tongued lecturer. She was said to be the only woman able to rival in feminine oratory to the great Anna Dickinson, an advocate for the abolition of slavery and for women's rights. In addition, one of the best attested cases of spiritualism and spirit return involved Emma Harding Britton. According to famous author Raymond Buckland in his 2005 book, The Spirit Book, quote, In trance, Britain was the channel for Philip Smith, a crew member of the mail steamer Pacific. The Pacific was a ship on which Britain had originally traveled to America. They had gotten to know several members of the crew, including Smith. The spirit of Philip Smith claimed that the ship had sunk on the high seas, stating, quote, My dear Emma, I have come to tell you that I am dead. The ship Pacific is lost and all on board have perished. She and her crew will never be heard from more. When Britain disclosed this tragedy, the owners of the vessels threatened to prosecute her, but it turned out that the facts presented by the spirit through Emma Britton were true. The Pacific had indeed sunk. Britain's husband died in 1894, and she passed away in Manchester in 1899, on the 2nd of October, at the age of 76. Although Britain's death was a massive loss to the spiritualist movement, she is remembered for defining the seven principles of spiritualism. These principles still exist today with a few minor changes and remain in use by the National Spiritualist Association of Churches in the United States and the Spiritualist National Union in the United Kingdom. Here are the seven principles. 1. The Fatherhood of God. 2. The Brotherhood of Man. 3. The Communion of Spirits and the Ministry of Angels. 4. The Continuous Existence of the Human Soul. 5. Personal Responsibility. 6. Compensation and Retribution Hereafter for All the Good and Evil Deeds Done on Earth. And 7. Eternal progress is open to every human soul. Now that we've completed our long detour into the history, characters, fundamentals, and in general, just I'd say the main goals of the spiritualist movement in America and how it came to take such a prominent place, let's return to where we left President Pierce and his wife Jane only months after the tragic death of their only remaining child, Benny, in 1853. Jane has now fully immersed herself into the world of spiritualism, highly on the rise in the country, desperately trying to do whatever it takes to contact the spirit of her son. Now, this Sabbath evening, you will come in fancy before me, and I sit close by you, with your hand in mine, perhaps. 
1853, when Jane Pierce arrived at the White House, the Fox sisters were already world-renowned, touring their spiritual rapping act across the country. History tells us that Jane Pierce did successfully call upon the Fox sisters, and a seance was indeed performed within the walls of the White House in an effort to contact Benny. Many believe that while the Fox sisters' act was fabricated by the sisters themselves, something still happened that night, something we cannot explain. Perhaps as the veil was lifted, the collective energy and grief of the parents managed to open a door, unaware that something else might use the opportunity to come through. If the White House presented an opportunity, could not a demon or negative entity take advantage of that opportunity to seize control of the democratic capital of the free world? This seance held by the Pierce family and the Fox sisters is shrouded in mystery. If only we could truly know what happened, because the White House has never been the same since. Almost immediately after these multiple seances were held, Jane Pierce begins to write of their immediate success. She is indeed seeing her son again in full form throughout the White House. My precious child, you spirit yourself, my dear one. Was not your redeeming savior ready to receive you? These reports and sightings are what researchers believe to be the first documented ghost appearances at the White House. Since Pierce's administration began in 1853, almost every single presidential administration that have followed have their own documented reports of strange sightings and occurrences. Everyone from Truman to Carter and Reagan, even the Bush administration and the Obamas. Remember that interview we played at the beginning of the episode? Barbara and I, we haven't, I don't know if you see a ghost. That voice wasn't just anyone. You did? Something. Where? We were at the White House. That voice was Jenna Bush Hager, the daughter of George W. Bush, the 43rd president of the United States and current co-host of the Today Show. Be haunted, right? I mean, and maybe again, that's us <laughs> thinking it has to be haunted. But I said, buddy, yeah, what? you wouldn't believe what we heard last night. And he goes, oh, Jenna, you wouldn't believe what I've heard. Jane Pierce writes how for nights and nights following the seances with the Fox sisters, Benny would visit her in her sleeping hours a visitation which brought incredible joy and hope back into Mrs. Pierce's life, but also was an object of much concern. Spirits can manipulate the living by appearing to the grieved as the individual they long to see. Overcome with happiness and relief of knowing that their loved one is safe and well, the living will let them in without question or suspicion. We don't know who it was that Jane Pierce was allowing in and communicating with on a daily basis, and frankly, neither did she. Was she truly making contact with Benny in the spirit world, or was she tapping into something far darker and far more dangerous? After all, why couldn't a demon or more negative force take advantage of her weakness to force a move on the most important building in the country, arguably potentially the most important building in a large part of the world? White House staff from the Pierce administration write of passing Jane's door only to hear the soft cooing, giggling, and playing of a mother and son on the floor. Franklin Pierce was extremely distraught and concerned about his wife's state. A famous Seventh-day Adventist minister wrote the following in his 1853 book, The Signs of the Times, with relation to the burial of the president's son, Benny Pierce.
A marble monument in the form of an obelisk has recently been put up in the old burying ground in Concord, New Hampshire, to mark the spot where lie the remains of the son of President Pierce, who lost his life by the accident on the Boston and Maine Railroad in January last. The monument bears the following inscription, Benjamin Pierce, born April 13th, 1841, died January 6th, 1853. Go thy way, thy son liveth. Does President Pierce believe what is stated in the last clause of the above, that his son, who died January 6th, 1853, quote, liveth? If he does, then why may he not expect a visit now and then from his only son? Suppose some accomplished demon should visit the abode of the chief magistrate of this nation and imitate the handwriting of the deceased, and in a manner calculated to touch the finest feelings of the soul, freely communicate with those bereaved parents, move chairs, tables, etc., play instruments of music, or even imitate the well-known voice of that only child. Would those parents be likely to resist that visitor and drive him from them, or would they believe him to be the spirit of their dear son? Demons of this nature can function like a spiritual parasite, latching on and using powerful manipulation to break down the individual's psyche, first showing itself in the living as intense depression, anxiety, or sadness, and eventually leading to a near collapse of the living's identity as the will of the demonic entity takes over. The concept of an energy like this potentially latching on to the president, especially one as broken and emotionally distraught as Franklin Pierce and his wife, is concerning. What if a force like that had the power to cause irrational behavior from the most powerful individuals this country will ever know? Maybe it already has. In 1854, less than a year into President Pierce's administration, a bill, arguably one of the most important bills of our time, came across his desk, one that he had been vehemently opposed to. The Kansas-Nebraska Act. This bill would expand the territorial area of the United States, but would also expand the area of slavery along with it. The northern states were, of course, opposed, while the southern states needed it in order for their economy to remain functioning. As Pierce was considering his decision, reports tell of loud rappings on the walls of his office and looming dark shadows stalking people down the hallways of the White House. A presence was beginning to make itself known. For a reason never explained, Pierce abruptly changed his mind completely and signs the bill into law. With his signature, a country that was already wound up and ready to break, splinters in half. His attempt to settle the issue of slavery and placate America did exactly the opposite. It led to rebellions, Riots, murders, and revolts all across the country, birthing the nickname Bleeding Kansas. The passage of this one act single-handedly opened the door to the bloodiest event ever to occur on American soil. It was the greatest failure of his presidency, and ultimately of any presidency. The Civil War had begun. In almost every presidency that has followed, there have been events that have changed the entire world forever. Landmark decisions made by the elected leaders of our country that we look to for sound judgment and decision-making in accordance with the well-being of our country. Truman and the atom bomb, JFK and the Cuban Missile Crisis, 
Vietnam, Reagan in the Cold War, 9-11 in the War on Terror. The list goes on. The stone tape theory is the paranormal speculation that ghosts and hauntings are similar to tape recordings and that mental impressions during emotional or traumatic events can be projected in the form of energy, recorded onto rocks or other items and replayed under certain conditions. Name one other location with a better chance of having emotional and traumatically charged memories capable of looping themselves across time. Is the White House the ultimate stone tape recorder? It is extraordinarily probable that during this time, numerous blessings were likely done on the White House in the wake of the oppression the family was reporting. It is so in keeping with the customs of the time, after all. Many researchers suggest that an exorcism may have occurred, primarily to aid the poor Jane Pierce. The purpose of possession is like a bad relationship. Its goal is to separate you from everyone around you to the point where it can begin to break you down mentally, emotionally, psychologically, without the interference of those around you. I can't think of a better description for Mrs. Pierce's plight. But in the moment, the living is experiencing the attention of this entity that may make promises to the living or offer them experiences that make things feel better. Promises like seeing what you believe to be your deceased son, whom you miss more than life itself. For that reason, exorcisms can be extremely difficult. If a demon has found its way into the living, it can be nearly impossible to get them out, especially if the living doesn't want them to go. Franklin Pierce went on to be a one-term president, a sitting duck, as the Democratic Party wouldn't nominate him for office again. To this point in history, not being nominated for a second term had never happened to a US president. His career was more or less over the final nail in his political coffin, and he fades into obscurity, considered one of the worst presidents in our history. Jane and Franklin left the White House after his presidency and returned to their home. Less than 10 years later, Jane dies. Franklin is alone in the world, his entire family taken from him, and in 1959, he drinks himself to death. Many believe whatever darkness was brought into the White House during the Pierce administration has never left. But the dark happenings at the White House don't end with the departure of the Pierce family. Oh no, we're only just beginning. Arguably America's most revered president, whether all of it justly or not, arrives at the White House in 1861, Abraham Lincoln and his wife, Mary Todd. A self-taught corporate lawyer for the railways, Lincoln's story tells a tale of humble beginnings and a meteoric rise to lead the newly developing Republican Party on the cusp of the Civil War, a war which was a near given on the heels of James Buchanan's term in office. The fate of the country rested in Lincoln's sound decision-making and ability to lead through the toughest hurdle America had yet to face. Shortly after Abe's arrival at the White House, Lincoln tells his friends that he has already seen a vision. He's seen a ghost. One of the reflections that he saw was his own, a reflection that appeared to him as pale and gaunt. Immediately, his wife Mary interpreted the vision to mean Lincoln would live out his first term, but not his second. 
Lincoln is a fascinating person in the sense that we can't fully pin down what his own belief system was. He is quoted as saying, When I do good, I feel good. When I do bad, I feel bad. That is my religion. But he was always extremely open when discussing things like visions or premonitions that he seemed to experience, as we will come to find out more and more as we continue forward through time. While Abe's background was extremely humble, Mary Todd's was far from it. She grew up in a beautiful home with a well-to-do family. For her time, she was extraordinarily well-educated, and upon marrying Abe, gave birth to four beautiful children. Her favorite, quite clearly, was Willie. Willie was described as incredibly loving and caring, as well as powerfully bright like his father. Upon Mary Todd Lincoln's arrival at the White House, she immediately felt that the home should reflect the authority, power, and elegance of the office of the presidency. She began spending Congress's funds to renovate, restore, and elevate the White House to the place of esteem she felt it deserved. As is common in the paranormal world, when the renovations began, activity increased dramatically. President Taft experienced something similar in 1911 as the largest of the White House renovations began to take place. From 1911 onwards, people who regularly work and live in the White House began speaking of an entity they called the Thing. People would experience walking into pockets of freezing cold air and experiencing the sensation of something looking and breathing right over their shoulders. Staff members recount feeling this extreme pressure on their chest or even being tapped on the shoulder. However, when they turn to look, they either see nothing or a massive black amorphous shape floating behind them. We do have one verified and documented apparition of the thing by a housekeeper. She reported seeing a young boy with light disheveled hair and very sad blue eyes. President Taft was so concerned by these appearances that a military aide named Archibald Butt was assigned to investigate the thing. He went on to write extensively about the probable reality of the thing to his sister in letters, quote, It seems that the White House is haunted. The ghost, it seems, is a young boy from its description. I should think about 14 or 15 years old. They say that the first knowledge one has of the presence of the thing is a slight pressure on the shoulder, as if someone were leaning over your shoulder to see what you might be doing. When Butt repeated the staff's gossip about the thing to the president, Taft flew into a towering rage. He thinks it will be a very serious thing to have the story get out among the people of the country. Taft ordered Butt to tell the White House housekeeper that the first member of the staff to repeat stories about the thing would be fired. In an even darker twist of irony, anything that Butt may have been able to figure out about who the thing was or what its intentions were, were lost and died with him when he went down in the Titanic. But I'm getting a little ahead of myself. Let's go back to Lincoln's presidency as the states are beginning to secede from the nation and the first shots of the Civil War are being fired. If there were indeed a demon in the White House, would it not look upon the tearing apart of America by the seams as the ultimate success, the ultimate act of destruction and chaos? By 1862, in Lincoln's first annual statement, it is clear that his goal was to keep slavery intact in the South where it already existed, to preserve the Union. That was his ultimate goal. Freeing the slaves was a far less concern. But Lincoln was facing battles on the home front as well. In 1862, 
Willie suddenly comes down with a very strange illness. At first, it seemed like a minor cold or flu. But soon, as Willie's health deteriorated, it became clear that typhoid was the cause. At 5 p.m. on February 20th, 1862, William Wallace Lincoln died. Elizabeth Keckley, the former slave who designed Mrs. Lincoln's beautiful wardrobe, washed and dressed him. When the president gazed at him, he mourned. My poor boy, he was too good for this earth. God has called him home. I know that he is much better off in heaven, but then we loved him so. It is hard, hard to have him die. Mary Todd watched him bury his head in his hands. My husband's tall frame convulsed with emotion. At the foot of my bed, I stood in silent, awe-stricken wonder, marveling that so rugged a man could be so moved. I shall never forget those solemn moments, genius and greatness, weeping over love's idol lost. Mary Lincoln was too inconsolable at the loss of her favorite son. To add to the anguish, Tad, her youngest son, lay seriously ill in just another room. Both children apparently suffered from typhoid fever, a common illness in disease-ridden Washington, D.C. Willie was the third son born to the Lincolns in Illinois, arriving on December 21, 1850, the same year their second son died. Now, with Willie's death, the family circle grew smaller yet. Robert, a student at Harvard College, was the oldest son and the only one who would outlive his parents. Willie's body was taken downstairs to the green room, where it remained until burial. Doctors Brown and Alexander handled the embalming, a procedure they would perform three years later after the president's assassination. Willie lay in a flower-covered metallic coffin designed to resemble rosewood, with his name and date of birth and death inscribed on a silver plate. Families came to pay their respects on February 24th, the morning of the funeral. Just before the service, the Lincoln family gathered around the coffin for a private farewell. Benjamin French, who supervised the arrangements, wrote, quote, While they were thus engaged, there came one of the heaviest storms of rain and wind that has visited the city for years, and the terrible storm without seemed almost in unison with the storms of grief within. For Mrs. Lincoln, I am told, was terribly afflicted by her loss and almost refused to be comforted. Mrs. Lincoln grieved in her bedroom upstairs during the funeral and the burial. Willie's death left deep marks on the Lincoln family. Elizabeth Keckley said Mary, quote, was an altered woman. She never crossed the threshold of the guest room in which he died or the green room in which he was embalmed. The similarities in the struggles brought upon the families of the presidency during this era are downright eerie. The pain these families were put through and forced to bear witness to was extreme. Both Benny and Willie were taken from the Lincolns and the Pierces at the same age, only 11 years old. Throughout his life, Lincoln had loved few things more than reading Shakespeare out loud to family and friends. After Willie died, the president's voice would break with emotion, and his eyes would be flooded by tears when he recited these lines from King John. And, Father Cardinal, I have heard you say that we shall see and know our friends in heaven. If that be true, I shall see my boy again. Though he never shrank from his responsibilities as commander-in-chief in the midst of a brutal civil war, Lincoln confided to others that Willie's death, quote, showed me my weakness as I had never felt it before. 
During Franklin Pierce's retirement, he spoke out often against Abraham Lincoln and the Civil War itself. Some called him a traitor, and even his close friends snubbed him. When Pierce's friend Nathaniel Hawthorne died, he wasn't even allowed to be a pallbearer, as Hawthorne had requested. But despite their many differences, Lincoln found himself in a place that only Franklin Pierce could know, mourning a lost child and worrying about an unstable wife while running a divided country. A few weeks following Willie's death, President Lincoln received this letter. My dear sir, the impulse to write you the moment I heard of your great domestic affliction was very strong, but it brought back the crushing sorrow which befell me just before I went to Washington in 1853. Even in this hour so full of danger to our country and of trial and anxiety to all good men, your thoughts will be of your cherished boy who will nestle at your heart until you meet him at that new life when tears and toils and conflict will be unknown. I realize fully how vain it would be to suggest sources of consolation. There can be but one refuge in such an hour, but one remedy for smitten hearts, which is to trust in him who doeth all things well, and leave the rest to time, comforter and healer, when the heart hath broke. With Mrs. Pierce's and my own good wishes and truest sympathy for Mrs. Lincoln and yourself, I am very truly your friend, Franklin Pierce. The melancholy presidents, so far apart in each and every other aspect of their lives, could at the very least find companionship, if not comfort, in the other's strength through painful weakness. Mary Todd Lincoln could not bring herself to accept this fate for Willie. In both cases, President Pierce and Lincoln, the wives decided to summon their spirits at the White House. We have arrived at the next seance held on the grounds of the presidential home. Mary contacts spiritualist mediums almost immediately after Willie's passing, and her relationship with spiritualism personally became extremely intense. Charles Colchester, a red-faced, blue-eyed Englishman with a large mustache, was one of five mediums who spent time in the White House during this period. Lincoln asked a personal friend, Noah Brooks, to look into Colchester's history to see if he was a true medium or an imposter. Using hypnosis, Colchester would regularly guide Mary through visitations with her beloved child. Similarly to Jane Pierce, after these sessions, Mary indeed began to see Willie all throughout the White House. Her half-sister, Emily Helm, recounts Mary bursting into her room at night, a very strange, hungry look in her eyes, declaring, He lives. Willie lives. I see him at night standing at the foot of my bed. As the pressures mounted on Lincoln and his family during the war, the carnage and death toll was constantly mounting. Spiritualists from all over the country began to insist now was the moment to declare the ending of slavery. In Lincoln's personal papers was a letter from John Coakland, a renowned medium who used to hold numerous seances with the president, claiming that he channeled the first draft of the Emancipation Proclamation from the spirits. I suppose if you were a medium with a connection to one of the most important pieces of history at that moment in time, it would make sense to try and lay some claim to it. But regardless, the voice of many, many more than just one medium ended up playing a part in calling Lincoln to action. In the end, Lincoln recognized that the only way to end the war would be to issue some form of executive act, essentially declaring all men to be free. But the connections to spiritualism and the world of the unknown in the White House still doesn't end there. 
Nancy Reagan worked in the field of astrology and loudly brought her experiences and understanding of astrology to her husband's term in office, and it played an active role in his schedule and commitments. This was so well known in its time that Reagan was questioned about it by reporters in the Rose Garden of the White House, asking if astrology would continue to play a part in his daily schedule. He adamantly denied any involvement, stating, quote, You asked for it. I can't because I never did. But Nancy was beginning to work with numerous astrologers, especially after the attempted assassination on Reagan. There was a very interesting similarity to the relationship between Abraham Lincoln and Mary Todd, in which the wife shows interest in metaphysics and the husband is not quite sure what to believe or who to trust. Lincoln's investigations into Colchester reaped some results, and Lincoln began to be truly suspicious. Colchester had a reputation of being a showman and working his way into homes of power to exert some influence over decisions being made. In time, we learn Colchester did indeed have a lot more at play and a lot more at stake with the Lincolns than initially thought. In 1865, Lincoln experienced the most chilling of his visions ever reported. The story goes that Abe fell into a fitful sleep and was roused by the sound of wailing and sobbing coming from all directions. As he rose from his bed and began to walk the halls to investigate, searching for the source, he found the entirety of the White House to be empty. At last, Lincoln found a soldier standing nearby and asked who they were mourning for. The soldier replied, The President. He was killed by an assassin. Only a few months later, Lincoln would be dead. From the day of Lincoln's untimely death to this day, his spirit is the most prevalent seen in the White House by presidents and staff alike. President Coolidge's wife, Grace, records apparitions of Lincoln in the White House, and Reagan's dog refused to set foot in what has come to be known as Lincoln's bedroom. These are known facts, and that's not all. Lincoln has been seen in the White House by Churchill, Queen Wilhelmina, and over a dozen people of major historical note who stand by their accounts of his appearance. It only makes sense that in his death, he more than likely felt a sense of unfinished business, a task that he was never able to complete. It was a common belief at the time that John Wilkes Booth, Lincoln's assassin, was under the influence of some form of satanic or demonic power when he went after the president that night. In fact, the Library of Congress contains a famous engraving of Booth with a demon over his shoulder controlling him into making decisions that he didn't mean to make. But it gets weirder still. Colchester, the medium to Mary Todd, was also discovered to be a drinking buddy of John Wilkes Booth and was constantly warning Lincoln about a suspected assassination attempt in his future. Booth initially came to Washington, D.C. with the plan to kidnap the president, but in the days before his operation, he stayed at a hotel about six blocks from the Capitol. Wouldn't you know it, but guess who else happened to be a guest at the same hotel at the same time? As federal agents moved in in Colchester at this hotel following the assassination, Colchester was nowhere to be found. Quote, what concerns me is that we may have something in the White House that is practically demonic. I have been inside the White House, but they won't let me anywhere near the Lincoln bedroom to do any research. You can only get so close to the truth and then they lock down all information. Clearly, after all these years of stories documenting dark and devilish energies and entities, they must know something, or they wouldn't feel the intensity to keep it hidden from the public. 
clearly they are concerned. One of the most vocal presidents about paranormal activity within the four walls of the White House was President Truman. In multiple letters to family members, Truman describes the disturbances he experienced. On nine separate occasions, the ghosts of the White House made it into his personal writings. Quote, sure shootin', the place is haunted. He is also the president to drop the atom bomb, changing the landscape of what was thought possible for a person in his position. At the time, the White House was literally collapsing about him physically. The walls and floors were rotting away at a rapid rate. Only when a piano collapsed through the second floor did Truman decide it was time for another major round of renovations. These renovations began to stir up intense activity all over again. That is when the first piece of hard evidence that no one can explain was discovered. In 2008, someone re-examined a photo that was taken during these renovations by a National Park Service assigned photographer named Abby Rowe. Lo and behold, standing on the right corner, nearly transparent and see-through, was a tall figure standing all alone. It has been examined by specialists and investigators for years, and still to this day, no one has an explanation. Many consider this to not only be the first and only ghost photo taken at the White House, but the best ghost photo ever taken. No one can explain who it was. However, it was taken directly below the Lincoln bedroom. Who is this presence in the White House? It's impossible to know for sure, although speculations run wild from demons to elementals. The White House is rich with secrets, traumas, death, lies, and as a building, the White House has stood testament to these events, a symbol of the power the country has to overcome. What happens if its greatest enemy comes from within? This has been an episode of When Walls Can Talk, the podcast, written, researched, and edited by your host, Jeremy Haig. I would be honored if you'd consider one friend that you think might enjoy this episode and share it with them. There's nothing that brings me more joy than listening to episodes or songs that my friends recommend. So please share the love with your tribe. Listening on Apple Podcasts, please consider leaving us a rating or a comment so that this one-man operation can take off to a whole new group of listeners. Please don't forget to visit my website, www.whenwallscantalktarot.com, to learn more about me, the show, and to purchase our brand new merch finally available on our online shop. Listeners to the podcast get an exclusive 10% off using the code WITCHCREW at checkout. Don't forget to reach out to me on Instagram at whenwallscantalk with underscores for spaces, or email me at jeremy at whenwallscantalktarot.com. So long, paranormal adventures, and I will see you next time on When Walls Can Talk. <laughs>